Hello and welcome to this episode of Thermonuclear Takes from Physical Attraction. Now in the last of this little series of news episodes in Thermonuclear Takes, we were talking about the financial shenanigans associated with SoftBank, but again there were some of these stories that just made you feel like Wiley e. Coyote with his legs circling through the air. Do you remember that's how we left off last time? Hey, speaking of a whole civilization that has already run over the cliff and has its legs cycling in the physics-defying attempt not to plummet into the abyss, without realising that gravity is not an optional phenomenon, let's talk about climate change. First off, there were a few quick stories on this theme that I wanted to look at, which you may have seen in the news lately. One which generated a lot of headlines recently was talk of a so-called tipping point in the Amazon rainforest. All I wanted to say here is that there was significant potential for confusion with the term tipping point as applied to the Amazon. There is a highly publicised tipping point concept that relates to the Amazon rainforest. And this is the idea that at some point it might get so deforested and degraded the entire territory would revert to savanna in a massive dieback of trees in the rainforest. Because in many ways the rainforest is a self-sustaining ecosystem that helps to generate its own rainfall. So there's this idea that once you degrade and deforest that ecosystem enough, the whole thing might die off. This is not the tipping point that's being referred to when we talk about the Amazon's tipping point that arises from this new study, but I think people knew that you would get more clicks if your headline said Amazon tipping point, so that's why we got that. This particular tipping point is still, by most estimates, some decades of deforestation away, if in fact it will be realised this way. Not that this really lets us off the hook, given just how much the Amazon is being demolished at present, but it's not quite as gloomy as we'd started off with. But the new study that is being reported on is instead part of a series of excellent and groundbreaking pieces of work which are occurring recently, which are allowing us to better understand the actual greenhouse gas emissions from land and natural or human-influenced landscapes through things like actually gathering the data, monitoring the CO2 levels through remote sensing, which we can do from satellites and all sorts of things now. So all of this work is brilliant, and it is helping us to understand a huge amount of how our impacts on the land, surface of the earth and the oceans too, are changing the carbon budget. The carbon accountancy of this sort of thing is incredibly important for not only understanding our impact and understanding which things we have to stop doing to prevent uh, dangerous feedbacks in the carbon cycle, but also for things like afforestation and nature-based solutions where we might try and draw down carbon, we're going to need to be able to have that monitoring, that verification, and so on. We've discussed that in our series on negative emissions which, as a plug, you can listen to via Patreon, and will start coming out on the main feed shortly. So this tipping point that's being described is not a rainforest is doomed tipping point, but the news is not particularly good. Essentially, as the Amazon is drying out and being damaged, fires are becoming more common. And for a large region of the rainforest, southeastern Amazonia, the emissions from the part of the forest that are burning down annually are now exceeding what the forest draws down in a given year, which means that this part of the Amazon rainforest is now a net source of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. Intuitively, it sort of makes sense how this could happen. When a tree burns, it will release a great deal of its carbon to the atmosphere. When a tree is growing and respiring, it's not sequestering its entire mass in carbon every year, but only a fraction of that. So burning one tree would emit more carbon than many trees growing somewhere else and taking in carbon. As we're understanding more and more about how land use changes are influencing the carbon cycle, this sort of thing is happening a lot. And the importance here is again understanding the difference between carbon stocks and carbon flows. So your sequestration rate might be the same, but the amount of carbon that's actually stored there is different. 
And indeed, this is part of why one of the things that we have to do to combat climate change is so urgently to preserve existing ecosystems in the way that they exist at the moment. Because these ecosystems have huge carbon stores. When you destroy them, those carbon stores, that stock, is often released partially or entirely into the atmosphere. So if you burn down a forest or if you destroy a forest and then plant a new one somewhere else, well, the rate at which that new forest is drawing down carbon might be the same or even higher than the rate that the old forest was drawing down carbon. But it doesn't by any means make up for it because you've destroyed a massive stock of carbon that was in that system and you have not replaced it with an existing stock of carbon that is in the new forest. The new forest could take decades to build up that same stock of carbon again and only then will you have neutrality in your two actions. And of course, on the timescales we're talking about, decades and so on really, really matter. This is true as well for uh, an interesting thing that I've been reading about recently, which is marine sediments on the ocean floor. Again, you've got lots of carbon. This is disturbed by trawlers. It's built up there for a long time, but the trawling can throw it up there. And there's some confusion and concern that a lot of this stuff is ending up in the atmosphere once disturbed. So once again, leaving these things be, protecting them, preserving what already exists is good for carbon. It's good for biodiversity. It's good because it tends to be the case that these new... Uh, plantations and new afforestations are less stable, less resilient, both to climate change and to things like pests and so on, because the natural equilibrium is the way it is for a reason, because that's what works. And I think this is just something to bear in mind when people talk about tree planting and uh, as ways of offsetting our emissions. The negative emissions series goes into this in much, much more detail. But um, these are all insights that we're continuing to get, by the way, from studies like this Amazon study, which are employing this remote monitoring and verification. There was another example recently, recent changes to how peatland is accounted for in the UK, shows that much of it has become so degraded that it is now a net carbon source, rather than a nice sink that you'd expect, as all of that organic biomass sinks into the earth. And that is because of the ways that it is drying out under our treatment of it. Lots of peatland was drained to make way for agricultural land in the UK, and that practice in some places has continued. That's very bad for carbon and bad for the climate. So in terms of the Amazon then, the point of what's going on there is that this is an expected but troubling feedback that is occurring as we continue to kick the Earth's climate system away from what it's used to. The natural sinks of carbon are being weakened by a combination of ways we're interfering with them, cutting down rainforests, digging out peatlands for compost, and the effects of climate change, like the heating and drying out of different regions, which are reducing their ability to draw down carbon from the atmosphere. The net effect of weakening these sinks over time is that more of our emissions will end up in the atmosphere, and in some cases, as with this region of the Amazon, extra emissions from these ecosystems due to the land use change, the biomass die-off, the fires, will also be emitted into the atmosphere. So this is not a new discovery per se, but a quantification of the damage that we're already doing, and it is depressing to consider that the Amazon is becoming so degraded that parts of it, the impact of these fires, the impact of this deforestation, are emitting more CO2 into the atmosphere than the forest itself can absorb. And I have to say, for all of the people who may want to help address climate change by planting trees, our atrocious record on actually preventing deforestation and the destruction of carbon-rich habitats like mangroves, peatlands and so on, this has to be corrected. There is little sense in trying to plant new and unstable forests while we are continually destroying those that already exist. And 
This, I would say, is an area, if you know that you live close to these ecosystems, if you know that you have some interest in them, if you know landowners, land managers, if you have local representatives who you can appeal to, this is an area I think that we can all get involved with as conservationists, which has an impact on climate as well. Unfortunately, the news that we have to deliver on climate being grim continues with a recent report from the International Energy Agency. Regular listeners to the show will remember our discussions about how the COVID-19 pandemic and associated economic recovery offered something of an opportunity for governments and industry who are required to invest lots of money in R&D and bringing back jobs and so on for the recovery and had latitude to do so, to redirect funding towards efforts that might do something to address climate change. This, of course, exemplified by the mantra adopted by at the very least the governments of the UK and US, build back better. This was associated with the hope that if a truly green recovery did arise, it might be possible that 2019 would have seen the peak of fossil fuel emissions, which would never bounce back above that level. On the other hand, if we muck this up, there was the prospect of the jump in emissions we saw after the global financial crisis when governments invest instead in dirty infrastructure projects to kickstart the economy, because these are seen as shovel-ready and ready-to-go, and these infrastructure projects uh, are seen as economic stimulus, but can often use fossil fuels and energy to work. We also talked in those earlier episodes, which I think were quite optimistic about the prospects for a green recovery, about various efforts, including that of Carbon Brief, to track just how much of this recovery money was going into genuinely green projects. Then in more recent news episodes, we have briefly discussed ominous signs of how this hasn't entirely materialised yet, how global emissions don't seem to have peaked in 2019, and how they were starting to resurge as parts of the economy, particularly in China, opened back up. Now we have this new flagship sustainable action tracker from the IEA, and unfortunately it makes grim reading. According to the report, if the world's governments implement their current recovery spending plans, global CO2 emissions will climb again, reaching record high levels in 2023, and are projected to continue to rise in the following years into the decade of the 2020s, if current plans are implemented. It goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. If that happens, if emissions continue to rise and rise throughout the 2020s, you can really kiss the Paris Agreement goodbye. 1.5 degrees is already a massive, massive stretch, which requires heroic levels of mitigation, massive and stringent immediate emissions cuts, and then, generally, lots of carbon dioxide removal towards the end of the century. Focusing on the here and now, for 1.5 degrees to be feasible, We're talking about emissions being cut in half, globally, by the end of the decade. You merely need to look at a graph of how emissions have changed to realise just how dramatic a turnaround that would be. If they continue to rise throughout that decade, or even just flatline without any mitigation, then 1.5 degrees is gone. 2 degrees gives us a bit more leeway, but if you're listening to this you will have seen the graphs that show you how much emissions have to fall even on these pathways. And the point is every year, every month of delay makes this ever happening, more and more unlikely outside of an optimistic model. It already requires heroic efforts for decarbonisation. Many major governments with world-leading pledges are still falling short of actually attaining those pledges. In other words, post-Covid, things have improved a little, but we're not looking to be on a greater trajectory yet. I'm going to dig a little more into what the report says. A headline point is that the IEA has a reputation of being relatively conservative. You wouldn't say they're green radicals, Early in the pandemic, though, they released a sustainable recovery plan, which recommended a trillion dollars of spending globally on clean energy measures, 
to get the world on track for Paris Agreement. And that would be every year, I think, up until 2025 or something. Current plans, however, only increase total public and private spending globally to $350 billion a year, so about a third of what they suggest. Now, one thing that I would point out with these figures is that according to the report, every dollar of public spending from the government mobilised three dollars of private spending uh, that goes and jumps on the bandwagon and gets involved with that. So when you're hearing $350 billion and so on, remember that not all of that is public money, uh, some of that is private money as well. Now, I appreciate that all of these numbers feel pretty meaningless without context, so I thought of a good comparison. The IEA says that it wants globally a trillion dollars a year for the next three years, around 0.7% of global GDP. If we divided that obligation up by GDP, then the US would be spending $159 billion on climate measures across both private and public enterprises. That's not a small amount, but it's still just a fifth of the US defence budget. And not all that money comes from the government. Most of the private finance, most of it is private finance that will shift to renewables and clean tech anyway. In fact, if that ratio of $1 to $3 of public to private money spent continued, then it would require just $40 billion annually on climate to hit this target, which is around 5% of that defence budget. And then you can think about things like the cost of F-35 fighter jets alone being pegged at $1.5 trillion over their lifetime. And you start to think, we're talking about the cost of a fighter jet program, and it's not not comparable to the cost of putting the entire energy system on a sustainable footing, according to the IEA, uh, creating many, many jobs in the process. And you start to wonder about our priorities, really, with this stuff. I don't want anyone to think, by the way, I'm picking on the US. This same is true of many other countries as well. It's just that this is where most of my listeners live. I know, of course, also that the MMTers among us will be saying that the how do you pay for it question is a red herring. And of course, we have seen in this pandemic just how much money can indeed be found when things are prioritised, ignoring that the IEA says that their investment would boost economic growth, create jobs, etc. But if nothing else, the money that is spent by states is a metric of how much effort they're willing to put in and how much they're willing to prioritise different things. And at the moment, they are falling short. Another point of comparison for these figures Since the pandemic began, the world's governments have mobilised $16 trillion in fiscal support during COVID-19, most of that being emergency financial relief for individuals and companies. But just 2% of that is earmarked for stuff related to the clean energy transition. If they had set aside just 6% of the funding for climate measures instead, then we would be on the road to net zero and not staring down the abyss of further increasing emissions. So typically, if you sort of talk to treasury types, if you talk to political types and politicians and so on, you will get a story of like, oh, well, we don't want to spend too much money on this because that will cause inflation. But we're not actually saying double what you've spent over the course of the pandemic. Uh, We're saying change it from 2% to 6%. You know, it's not a case that what we've done so far is not going to cause inflation, but this will be the thing that does. The other thing I would say, of course, is that you have to look at what inflation actually is with our sort of MMT head on. Uh, Inflation occurs when you have too much money chasing too few goods and services. Um, It's that constraint on the economy. When you're not doing stuff that creates productive capacity for you, uh, when you're not creating value, but you are creating money, that's kind of when you get inflation. Well, 
the sort of fiscal stimulus where we've paid people to stay at home and so on, that is an obvious example of money that is not creating value. Uh, the productive capacity is not increased. People are kept safe, which is great. In many cases, there are other positive effects where people have been able to pay down debts and things. That's also great. Um, but you're not increasing the productive capacity with that investment in the same way that you would be if you were investing in clean infrastructure, uh, new ways of heating buildings, electric vehicles, etc., etc. So I think it's a completely different proposition. And that if your concern is about inflation, then again, you should argue that more of this stuff should have been focused towards climate measures instead. Um, and the fact that it's just 2% of what has been earmarked for stuff related to the clean energy transition, 6% would have been enough to satisfy the IEA. You know, we're not talking about breaking the bank on what's been done as part of the recovery. 2.3 trillion, by the way, was explicitly earmarked for economic recovery measures alone. So again, you can compare that to the 380 billion that went for explicitly climate measures. And you can see that, okay, this was an economic recovery stimulus with a side order of greens and not a green recovery. So if we want to have some good news, then the good news is that there has been an increase in intended spending. New policies since this time last year will indeed add that extra $350 billion annually, which does fall well short of the trillion, but is an increase of around 30% on what we've seen in recent years. The IEA estimates that this investment by 2023 would reduce emissions by about 0.8 gigatons of CO2 from where they would have been without this investment. So it's avoided nearly a billion tonnes of CO2 emissions annually by 2023. But that's still 3.5 gigatons above where we'd need to be by 2023 for their net zero pathway, and a reminder that emissions at the moment are around 40 gigatons a year. So we're preventing our emissions from getting worse at a rate that is quite small compared to the overall size of the problem. Drilling down further into the report, the IEA notes that this is not equal across different countries. On average, we're about 33% of the way to their target. Wealthy nations, however, are 60% of the way there. Poorer nations are just 20% of the way there. In large part, this is because these nations have been harder hit by the pandemic, they've been harder hit in health terms, harder hit economically, and their governments tend to be much more politically constrained in their ability to spend, wary of inflation, often in debt to other countries, that kind of thing. The IEA also had another report out talking about the power and electricity sector specifically in the last year. Here they note that while renewables are continuing to grow strongly, the demand for electricity is growing even more quickly as economies recover, such that the increase in renewables can only make up for half of the increase in electricity demand. The result is that that gap, where we've got too much demand, not enough new renewable supply, is being plugged by fossil fuels again, with even coal-fired electricity set to increase in the next few years. And that really is as bad as it sounds. So some takeaways from the report that are very obvious. Wealthy nations need to do much more to help finance poorer nations. This is one of the major aims of the upcoming COP26 climate conference in Glasgow, but also historically one of the hardest aspects of climate policy to negotiate internationally. So we'll see how that goes. There are people talking about increasing the proposed climate finance commitment. There has been a long-standing commitment which has not been met, which is that 100 billion annually would go from wealthy countries to poorer countries to help them with climate mitigation and climate adaptation. Now, I think this is extremely important, extremely important. Uh, this isn't just a social justice phenomenon. It's a practical, how do you decarbonize the world? How do you avoid the most emissions for the least books? That's how you do it, is you put it where it's needed. Um, it is possible that the IEA, who have been historically guilty of underestimating renewables, 
their projections of a return to fossils may prove to be too pessimistic in the next few years. We can only hope so. And that's a caveat I should point in. But I think that the fact that we're seeing this divergence in investment is part of the immense frustration with the inequalities of our current economic system and how this makes tackling global problems like climate change so difficult. There should not be more solar panels in the UK than the entire continent of Africa, but there are. Developing nations have an opportunity to leapfrog the wealthy world and get access to the benefits of electrical power without relying on fossil fuels. At the same time, it's absolutely critical that they do, because if these nations start building a fossil fueled economy, it will lock in emissions for decades, and there will be far too much inertia to track back on that. If they're getting these new energy services, the ones that we and wealthy nations have relied on and enjoyed for many years, with dirty infrastructure, then we're in real trouble. Which means that every dollar spent in poorer nations ensuring that they're powered by solar and wind and that the infrastructure is electrified and not fossil fuel based, this is what has the huge disproportionate impact globally when it comes to avoiding potential emissions in the future and keeping large swaths of the planet habitable, as well as of course extending the benefits of energy, which we want to do, to more and more people. But the inequities in our system mean that what efforts are made, what dollars are spent, and what deployment there is, is balanced in favour of things where it is still effective, but not as effective as it would be. Yet again, there's a future that's not very evenly distributed. All governments have been guilty of paying a lot of lip service to the idea of a green recovery, I think, without really committing that much funding to the idea, which is a shame. Because I think I did believe during the pandemic that we genuinely did have an opportunity to actually remake society in a slightly better and hopefully more sustainable way. And it seems that some good deal of what we're doing so far is inadequate for that. The Paris Agreement targets absolutely remain in jeopardy and are slipping further away for as long as this inadequacy continues. And I know that there's a contingent of my audience who will say the IEA are talking out of their backside anyway, that these tales of recovery that outstrips clean recovery and electricity demand growth that exceeds renewable supply are more pieces of evidence that economic growth, the sacred cow of global governance, which predominates over all things, is incompatible with any sort of sustainable trajectory for our civilization when we pursue it as much as a goal as we do at the moment. And indeed, on the subject of sustainable trajectories, the authors behind that famous limits to growth study from the 1970s, or indeed their ideological descendants at the Club of Rome, have released another study backing up their original conclusion that civilization is bound on a trajectory heading inevitably towards civilizational collapse. Now, I have my own opinions on that, I'm doing more reading on it, but it kind of feels like a question that we will discuss here some more. The only thing I can say on this is that it is a question I struggle with a lot and have been reading about a lot, and I have been working on some scripts that will probably spiral into another mega-series if I don't get them under control, but it will probably take a long time for me to have something I'm really happy with. Once I do, you will get it, so watch this space. Now, I realise that these reports have focused a lot on the money that we spend on things that might replace fossil fuels to curb the demand side. But of course, it's about more than just spending money on replacements, it's about curbing the damaging activity that we're already doing. And in spring last year, the IEA said that to achieve the Paris Agreement, it's now necessary to stop all new additional fossil fuel infrastructure projects. No more exploration, no more new sites to be developed for extraction. Specifically, they said, exploitation and development of new oil and gas fields must cease in 2021. No new coal-fired power stations can be built for a good chance of the Paris Agreement. Now, this is something that obviously, again, 
if you want to lobby local politicians, if you want to lobby people who have influence over these things, the IEA is saying that we can't have any more of these sites developed. It is at odds with things that uh, recently Saudi Arabia have said where they want to mine every molecule of oil, this sort of thing. Um, but the, the point is that these carbon deposits that are being explored in terms of fossil fuels, if we're going to achieve the Paris Agreement, will end up as stranded assets. Now, you may be too cynical about the ability of global governance to actually put an outright ban on exploring for new fossil fuels. Indeed, one of the issues that is constantly arising with this and arose again recently is the fact that fossil fuel companies still under trade laws have the ability to sue governments who prevent them from developing sites uh, for the cost that they lost of those stranded assets, which is is crazy to me. Um, But if you doubt that global governance is going to be able to actually implement the ban on new exploration that we need, and you may well be right, then our only other hope is to ensure that all of this stuff becomes uneconomical to burn and sell. And that means that we need to switch over to using new sources of energy at such a large scale that they are cheaper um, than the fossil fuel alternatives, if at all possible, and at such a large scale that the actual demand for those fossil fuels goes down. So anything that we can do to curtail the supply side is good. Anything we can do to reduce the demand side is good. The fossil economy has to end, and it's as simple as that, really. Um, But this statement, proclamation by the IEA, that this new development is incompatible with Paris now, I think is a concrete thing that you can use to say, look, you can't tell us that these new developments you're proposing, the new coal mine in Cumbria that has been proposed and so on, is compatible with Paris, because organisations that aren't that radical are saying that it certainly isn't. The phase-out plan the IEA drew out also included by 2025, I think, not selling any more fossil fuel boilers. From 2030, the majority of car sales are electric, fossil fuel cars being phased out entirely by 2035. So again, you have to look to your governments, look to your private sectors, look to other organisations who are involved with, is this what they're doing? Does the rhetoric around the Paris Agreement, around tackling climate change, around net zero, does this match reality? Because... This is what the leading authorities on energy supply are saying is necessary. Net zero by 2050, action on climate change, world leaders on climate change, the Paris Agreement that we have signed up to as a business or a city or a country. These are pretty phrases, but they have logical implications and consequences that directly impact what your action today and what your policy today should and must look like now what organisations have to be planning for and doing now. Since 2018-19, you know, many more corporations and governments, I think, have been willing to talk a big game on climate in response to public concerns. But there are plenty of other things everyone says they're in favour of that don't get done. So it's feet to the fire time now. What are the plans for these short-term and immediate implications of doing what you say you'll do? We got a bit polemical there at the end. Thank you for listening to this newsy episode of Thermonuclear Takes from Physical Attraction. Remember, you can find us on the web at physicspodcast.com. There you'll find the contact form. Any comments, questions or concerns, please get in touch with me. I love to hear from you. Any topics you'd like us to discuss, people you think we should interview, all that sort of thing. I love to hear it. It's great to get feedback from listeners, so please send that along. You will also find there ways you can support the show financially. You can donate to us. There's a PayPal link. There's a Patreon. Subscribe there to get bonus episodes and early episodes as soon as they come out. We appreciate all of those of you who have already done that. You can engage with us on social media. The links are also on the website. And of course, 
one of the many ways that you can support the show if you enjoy what we do, if you think it's important, please tell other people who may be interested about the show to listen to it and stick your listening habits up on social media and stuff like that. It all makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. Until next time then, please do take care.